Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And today's Jill's Pin is in honor of the issue we're going to be talking about, which is the admission of asylum seekers to America under our existing laws. And it is a mother and child uh, holding hands as they try to cross the border. So Jill and I are actually calling from the same room today, which will be fun. Um, but today, like Jill said, we are going to be talking about Title 42, a very old public health law last used in 1929 before President Trump used it to turn away immigrants crossing the border, allegedly for public health um, reasons when COVID first um, became an issue. President Biden continued using Title 42 for, for that purpose, but recently announced that he would no longer uh, be allowed to be used to prevent entry to asylum seekers um, lawsuits ensued and reached the Supreme. Hold on, and reached the Supreme Court recently. Uh, this is from the same room, so it's interesting. <laughs> We're using um, one computer; yes. it's hard. But um, the federal district court um, then ruled that Biden could end the use of the policy in connection with asylum seekers. At that point, nineteen states sought to intervene and ask the policy to remain in effect until the Supreme Court ruled. In that opinion, five to four, the majority of justices voted keep the Title 42 policy in place until the case can be fully argued in February. And today we want to talk more about this policy, whether it's still necessary, and where this law goes from here. And it's a very complicated case and a very complicated uh, fact pattern on procedure and on substance. And our guest today, Legal Learned, is the exact perfect, perfect person to walk us through that and help us understand. He was actually one of the first guests on iGen Politics, I think when we were still known as intergenerational politics, before we became iGen Politics under Politicon's guidance. And he's one of the few that we have had back for a second appearance. And that's because he's so good. And he's also the star of a documentary that I highly recommend that everybody watch. Um, but he's the perfect guest to talk about whether Title 42 is appropriate now that COVID is no longer the health threat that it was when this law was first applied to keep immigrants out. And he's also gonna talk about the lower court's decision and the Supreme Court's ruling, including especially, of course, the dissent in which Gorsuch had really strong language, which we will quote for you because it's really good. Mm -hmm. um, and he has argued a number of times before SCOTUS and represents the ACLU in the original lawsuit involving uh, Title 42. But I also want to hear his views on comprehensive immigration reform, because as the Supreme Court in its 5-4 uh, allowing this to go forward made clear, this is a way, using this is a way to avoid Congress actually dealing with the actual issue. This is not a COVID issue. This is an immigration issue. So you can watch him in a, a documentary called The Fight, and we'll post a link to that on our show notes so that everyone can get to that. I'm also very proud to say that he is also a, a professor at Columbia Law School, my alma mater. So I think it's great. And um, I'm very glad that you're here today, Lee, to help us understand what's going on here. Thanks for being here and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you both for having me back. This is fantastic. Of course. So happy new year. Before we talk about the Biden administration's decision to stop uh, using Title 42 as the border control mechanism and uh, the ensuing court cases, 
I want you to help us um, understand what Title 42 is and how it came to be for um, immigration purposes. Right. So Title 42, the statute on which this policy is based, dates back to a statute enacted in 1893 during the cholera epidemic um, and was designed for people coming from Europe who might have cholera. And we have always taken the position, it has not ultimately been litigated to the end, but that it was designed to stop uh, boats from coming or, or other transportation entities and not actually directed at individuals. And it's been used, as you said, once before for transportation entities, but since its enactment in 1893, it has never until now been used to expel individuals from the country. Mm -hmm. So this is unprecedented in more than a century. And what Title 42 does is it says, it authorizes the government to expel you immediately without any asylum hearing whatsoever. And so that's really the critical point. Our laws before Title 42 allowed for what was called expedited removal. But what the critically, what those laws did, even though they moved very quickly, is allowed people to have a screening for asylum. Title 42 eliminated any access to asylum whatsoever. And so I, I want to get into the details of it, but I think you know, to start, a lot of people say, well, too many people are getting asylum or there's too much access to asylum. But in order to defend Title 42, you really have to take the position that no one, no one, no matter how much danger they're in, no matter what type of persecution they face coming from a country that persecutes you on the basis of your religion, your race, your politics or anything, you doesn't did. deserve asylum because there is no asylum hearing whatsoever. And I've heard a lot of statements, misstatements about, well, just go to the border legally and then you can apply for asylum. Title 42 doesn't prevent that. I want to be very clear. Title 42 prevents you from any access to asylum, even if you come to a port of entry, present yourself lawfully. It's a total elimination of asylum. So to defend it, you really have to take the position that not a single person is deserving of access to asylum. We can have, and we'll get into this when we talk comprehensive immigration reform, we can have the debate about whether the asylum laws need to be revised, need to be tweaked in some way, need to be more, made more efficient, but you really can't defend Title 42 if you believe anybody is entitled to asylum. And so we we took the position when Title 42 was enacted in March of 2020. When you say we, well, you mean the ACLU? I, yes, I apologize. The ACLU and our partners, we had been fighting up till then the first three years of the Trump administration's term, various asylum restrictions. The Trump administration had enacted a series of asylum restrictions, and we had fought all those in the courts to varying degrees of success, blocked many, slowed many down. But then what happened is in March 2020, the pandemic hit. And I think the Trump administration said, oh, well, here's our, our silver bullet to end asylum completely. So they went back and looked at this obscure law, the Title 42 law, and said, let's have this policy that completely blocks access to asylum and allows for summary expulsion. At the time, even when the pandemic was at its severest, we did not think this was justified on public health grounds. And that view was supported by public health officials 
all across the country. And what we've since found out is that CDC, which was the agency that actually put in place this law, didn't also believe that didn't believe that it was justified on public health grounds and that they were pressured politically. And there's since been a lot of, of interviews and statements with high level public health officials who didn't believe it was justified on public health grounds. But even if one wants to think, well, it was justified at the height of the pandemic back in 2020, I think there's no question now that it can't be justified on public health grounds. And that's why CDC has tried to get rid of it. That's why every public health official across the board who's meaningfully studied this has said, we no longer uh, should be using this. It's not justified on public health grounds. And judges across the spectrum have said, look, this, this cannot be justified any longer. And what the Court of Appeals in DC, the first time this case hit the, the Court of Appeals said was, this appears to be a relic before we had vaccines, before we had testing, before we really knew anything about it. And, and what you see is the whole country now open. We don't have restrictions. Uh, you know, it's not to minimize COVID at any time, but we can't be saying the only people who should be subjected to COVID restrictions are vulnerable asylum seekers. But that's essentially what's happened. And you see the 19 states now, GOP-led 19 states who are trying to intervene in the case. Those states have opposed COVID restrictions in their own states virtually across the board. They are the ones who have been leading the fight against any COVID restrictions. But yet all of a sudden now they want this COVID restriction. And I think it's a fairly transparent attempt to transform Title 42 from a public health measure into a border immigration measure. And as Jill mentioned at the beginning, I think that's what Justice Gorsuch uh, called out in his dissent. And he said, look, we don't have a COVID crisis at the border any longer. That, that's not plausible. If you think we have a crisis, a border management crisis, then deal with that directly. But we can't misuse the public health laws. And I think not only can we not use them as the public health laws in this particular case because of the damage it's doing. But I think it's a dangerous precedent for us to set more broadly to start using public health laws to, in, in ways that they weren't intended. And, you know, it's particularly pernicious in the immigration area because of all the tropes about how immigrants bring diseases, they're, they're not clean. And that goes back to the 1800s. And you see statements being made by the governor of Texas saying, we don't know where these people are coming. They could be bringing diseases from anywhere. I think don't think there's really even the pretense any longer that anybody thinks Title 42 is necessary for COVID. Well, the states did not even really make that argument in the courts. They are not pretending that this is a health crisis. They are really basically admitting that this is a way to keep out immigrants. They aren't even suggesting that there be testing which would be another way to deal with this is if you think that there's a COVID problem, even though we let in, as you point out, everybody, we've dropped the requirement that people be tested before they get on a plane to come to America, except there may now be in China, in China um, that may be going back into force. But that's what you do is you test the people coming in to make sure that they individually are not bringing any disease into the country. You don't just block all Chinese from coming in. You block in Chinese who won't test or who test positive in the same way that you would block anybody who tests positive. But, okay, we'll get to that part of this um, as we go forward. Um, and, I mean, Trump clearly used this uh, for those coming. It also seems 
from particular countries. He didn't, is, is that right that he didn't say everybody who comes to America from a foreign country for asylum? Is well, everyone who comes on land. And so it was even handed in the sense of it applied to everyone who came on land without documents and was seeking asylum. But I think everyone knew that the Trump administration was trying to stop people from Central and Latin America and South America. And so that's really where I think it was directed, even though it was it applied to anybody who came across. I think so, the real thrust of what he was trying to do was stop asylum seekers from Central America. Okay, so if a Ukrainian flew to Mexico or Canada and came across the border to seek asylum in America, would it apply to them? It, it would. It would. Okay. But I think what we I think what we know now, what we really knew at the time was that the the goal of the Trump administration was to stop Central American asylum seekers. What about stop. Venezuela? For some reason, was there discussion that Venezuela was different? Well, so what happened was Venezuela was not taking back their nationals and who were fleeing, and we were allowing them in because we couldn't send them back. And the Biden administration has now convinced Mexico to take Venezuelans. And so Title 42 has been expanded to cover them. I mean, it always covered them on their face, but now in practice, they are being subjected to Title 42. And the rumor is that they're going to try and use Title 42 for Cubans and Haitians and Nicaraguans. And I think that's particularly unfortunate, given that the Biden administration itself has said there's no longer a COVID justification mm -hmm. for Title 42. And there's no longer, uh, and CDC has said we no longer have a public health justification to not only be still using it. I mean, they have to use it now because of the stay and because of another court case we'll talk about out of Louisiana, but they don't have to expand it. Nothing requires them to expand it. So that that's really difficult to stomach. So, and I, you know, I know, and I know we want to get to this, but I, I think there is a sense, you know, sort of for a lot of people who don't live on the border, the border is out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. And the harm, I think, it has really gotten lost in the aggregate statistics and the abstract policy arguments have sort of blurred the human dimension of this. And it feels very technical, Title 42. It doesn't really evoke, uh, a, you know, a, a lot of images. Um, but what our partners and we have documented is just horrific, horrific abuse. Thousands and thousands of people, including families with little children, being persecuted, tortured, raped, kidnapped, even killed. And what we we told the Court of Appeals, the Federal Court of Appeals, the first time the case was there is that families were being pushed back over the bridge. The U.S. government knew the cartels were at the other end of the bridge. They were sometimes being sent back, often being sent back late at night. The U.S. government knew the cartels were literally at the other end of the bridge waiting for these families. And what the U.S. Court of Appeals said is it was like making these families walk the plank. It's just, you know, you see these parents, they're holding their little kid's hands, their child's hand, walking back over the bridge and knowing what they're walking into. And we were just sending thousands and thousands of people. And so we can talk about border management and we should, but we can't have a policy where you don't give even screen people for danger. And you're literally just sending people right into the teeth of danger. And, and groups like Human Rights First have documented thousands and thousands of cases 
of harm, just absolute brutality. So we knew, we know that President Trump used this um, in 2020. We know that President Biden also um, has continued to keep immigrants out under Title 42, although now he wants to um, get rid of that policy. But is there anything different from how President Biden used um, Title 42 um, in terms of treating immigrants under that policy compared to Trump? Yeah, that's a very good question. And, you know, we have felt, I, you know, I have felt that President Biden has done some very good things on immigration. He's trying to reunite families who were separated under the horrific family separation practice. But truthfully, at the border with Title 42, there hasn't been an enormous amount of difference. And it was very disappointing that he kept it and has kept it this long or kept it this long until he finally agreed to get rid of it. The one thing he did do, which we were appreciative, is exempt from Title 42 unaccompanied children. And so that was a good step. But he continued to apply it to single adults and families, including families with small children. And, you know, again, I said disappointing, deeply, deeply disappointing that he did that. He's exempted uh, probably more people than on humanitarian grounds than the Trump administration did. But that's a drop in the bucket compared to the tens of thousands of people the Biden administration has sent back to danger without any asylum hearing. So as to the border, I'm not sure that you could say there's an enormous amount of difference between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, and that's been unfortunate. When we brought this case, the Biden administration asked us, hey, can we negotiate a little? And, you know, we're trying to get out from under what the Trump administration did. They decimated the structural components of asylum. We need to get out from under that. And so we actually put our case in abeyance in the beginning of the Trump administration for months to give them time to you get rid of Biden. Biden Sorry, the Biden administration. Right, exactly. And they never did it. And so we were forced to go back to court and, you know, we waited and waited. And they finally have gotten rid of it. But it took a long time and a lot of litigation. And now, you know, we're, we'll get to that. But unfortunately, now right. we've gotten over that hump with the federal government. Um, but the states have come in. And, and just to be clear where the federal government is, because they're not completely on our on board with our side they are still defending title 42 but what they have said is a fairly sort of nuanced position they are saying we think when we did title 42 back in the day it was lawful and we didn't act unlawfully but we don't think right now the conditions on the ground justify using it so what they are saying is we want a ruling that says it was lawful when we did it so that if we ever need to use it again, we can do that. Now, that's unfortunate to us that they're thinking they want to preserve this power, but that's what they're doing. So they're going into court and saying, look, we're not looking to do it right now and we think it should end right now, but we'd like a ruling saying it was lawful when we did it. So if we ever need to use it again, the states have come in, the 19 states have said, not only do we think it was lawful and it should be that power should be preserved, but we think it should continue right now. And as Jill pointed out rightly, they're not even claiming that it's necessary because of COVID. They're saying we want to keep it right now just to block asylum seekers. And our position, as Justice Gorsuch said in his dissent is, look, we can talk about the asylum process and whether we need to revise it. And we are not against having a more efficient asylum system as long as it preserves basic due process and asylum protections. But 
we can't use Title 42. So let's move on from Title 42 already. The states are saying, no, let's keep it just to block asylum seekers. But that was never what the law was intended to be. And even when you, you, know, you hear some people on the other side talk and they're being honest, they say it was always supposed to be temporary. We could never keep Title 42 forever just to block asylum seekers. But that's where we are now. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court has kept Title 42 in place. It was supposed to end December 21st. Now we're going to have argument at the end of February, probably March 1st, and we will have that argument. And hopefully, you know, that and that argument is limited to whether the states have a right to come into the case. Right. The and reality we'll get to that. I want to do this in a more logical fashion right. so that people who aren't Sorry. deeply embedded in this will understand. And I think you've brought us to a good point to transition to talking about the lawsuits. But I listening to you, I have to say one thing, which is, as I'm visualizing this horror of walking the plank, as the court said, and turning immigrants away, I am reminded of World War II and the Jews being turned away from America. Boatloads coming here and being told, sorry, goodbye, go away, and being returned to the Holocaust where they were killed. And I think if we didn't learn our lesson, and it, you know, I'm I'm particularly passionate on this right now because I'm seeing so much anti-Semitism now. That, um, but it's not just anti-Semitism; it is anti-immigrant. It's the nationalism. It it's we're in a horrible way, and the country. I mean, I want to say on behalf of the Biden administration, they are, even though it is, as you said, more nuanced than the broader policy you want it would solve the problem right now. It would allow for sure. a hearing. It would allow immigrants to make the case of why they need to have asylum. And this isn't something that applies to everyone who comes here for economic reasons. Right. This is for people who come saying, I am being discriminated against, I'm being abused, I'm being punished, I'm being tortured because of my race, because of my religion, because of my gender. I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons so I just want our audience to know that we're talking about asylum seekers, not immigrants in general. Um, but let's let's maybe move to trying to explain the ACLU brought a case and there is more than one. And then I, I also want our audience to really pay attention to what you just said about whether these 19 states can intervene. They were not parties below. And then they didn't like the decision. So now they're trying to say, please, court, don't end this. We have an interest in continuing it. And it, for me, it's a much bigger issue than just this case, because if states can intervene in what is clearly under every historic uh, part of our Constitution, a federal right, war and immigration are clearly federal government. They are not states' rights issues. And if they can intervene and say, no, I don't like the federal policy, let the states make the policy, we're in a really bad way. So that element, which is not getting much attention, I, I do want you to talk about. But yeah, maybe, Victor, you want to try and frame the question for uh, Lee about the the recent challenges? Sure. So, I mean, like Jill said, so the appellate court, Arizona versus Mayorkas, said that President Biden 
um, could and rejected a bid by 19 Republican states that wanted to keep the policy. Um, they, they weren't parties to the um, original case, but sought to um, intervene and were denied and then um, appealed to the Supreme Court. Is that the right way to um, kind of look at what happened? That is. So we brought a lawsuit against the federal government in the federal district court, the federal trial court in D.C. And what we said is, in technical terms, the policy was arbitrary and capricious, which in lay terms essentially just means it's irrational at this point because asylum seekers are such a small percentage of the people who are coming to the U.S. We have vaccines now. We we have testing ways to deal with it. Testing absolutely, and that the country is open. I mean, anybody who's been to a sporting event, including an indoor sporting event, knows there's no testing requirement. Vaccines. People are not wearing masks. So the country is complete. And we said, look, even if you want to assume back in the day that it was necessary for COVID reasons, and we didn't buy that, but even if you wanted to assume it, right now it's irrational to have this policy. The federal court said it agrees. The federal government said, but we think back when we did it, it was lawful. So that's what they were defending. We won that lawsuit and the federal government said, because CDC doesn't think the policy is lawful, it is necessary any longer, we are not going to seek what's called a stay of the ruling, meaning keep the ruling from going into effect. But we'd like five weeks to do the logistics to transition out of Title 42 to get our people ready to do asylum screenings at the border, and we need five weeks. And so we did not oppose that. Although the harm was occurring every day, we decided that it would be worse to spend that time litigating and it could delay everything. So we agreed to those five weeks. And so the policy was supposed to end on December 21st. Right. The government did appeal the ruling and said, we're gonna appeal it because we wanna preserve this authority for the future, but we will allow Title 42 to end on December 21st. The states knew about this case forever and had already said that they didn't think the federal government was adequately representing them, which is one of the tests for coming in for a third party to come in. But yet they waited till the very last minute until the case was basically on appeal in the D.C. Circuit and Title 42 was supposed to end on December 21st, said, wait, 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 we want the policy to stay. The Court of Appeals said, look, whether or not you have an interest in this case, you're just untimely here. It's been months and months and months that you could have sought to intervene. Now at the last minute, you're trying to intervene and that violates the rule of saying people who want to come into a case late need to do it in a timely fashion if they're not an original party. And so they laid it all out and in a very persuasive opinion said, you're just going to delay everything now and you slept on your rights and we're not going to allow you to come. Those 19 states then went to the U.S. Supreme Court and they said, we want you to keep Title 42 in place while we have a chance to litigate before you, the Supreme Court, whether we had a right to come in and whether the Court of Appeals was wrong to say we were untimely. And that's where that 5-4 decision comes in, unfortunately, where the court said, we agree with the states that we should keep the Title 42 in place and while we hear the question of their right to come in. So what the Supreme Court said is, we're not gonna get into the legality of Title 42 right now, We're just going to apologize. 
we're just gonna so i'm sorry about this we're, okay. we're we're just gonna look at whether the states had a right to intervene but unfortunately they again they kept the policy in place right. so now we have months and months more of title 42 in place while the supreme court hears the question of did the states have a right to come in late and either way we're going to have to ultimately get to the legality of title 42 so it's really delayed things for a long time and in addition to being untimely i think Jill is raising a very important point, which the Biden administration is also pressing based on institutional interest. The states are saying, well, we have a practical interest in the outcome of this. And what the federal government is rightly saying, in our view, is the states will always have some interest in federal policy all across the board. Immigration in particular, you know, is a federal interest. But across the board, the states can always conjure up some interest they have. But that doesn't mean they should be allowed to come in and litigate every single federal policy, that it basically opens up the door to there never being an end to litigation involving federal policy. Because the states can, and it's not just this administration and GOP states challenging, it could be the reverse, and you could have a, a Republican administration and blue states trying to challenge. And so I think what we're looking at is really opening up a Pandora's box if that happens. but. We ultimately think if the court doesn't want to reach all those sort of, as Jill said, really big issues about federalism and states coming in and to, that they can, the court can just say, look, whether or not the states generally should be able to come in, we can leave for another day because here they slept on their rights for right. literally eight, nine months. But that's what's happening. And so that's what's happening in this case. The other case that I think. Well, before want, before we get oh, to that, because I yeah, want to just. It, it, there was, and and I do want you to go on with that, but I just want to clarify something, which is in this 5-4 opinion, you had the three liberal justices joined by Gorsuch, although it was Gorsuch and Jackson who had the the written, the written opinion. Right. And I just want to read some language that, and Gorsuch is the author. This is one exactly. of the most conservative justices who said, but the current border crisis is not a COVID crisis and courts should not be in the business of perpetuating administrative edicts designed for one emergency only because elected officials have failed to address a different emergency. We are a court of law, not policymakers of last resort. And when we get to a discussion of the overall uh, reform of our immigration policy, we can talk about that because that's what's missing, is we need a comprehensive immigration reform. But right now, I, I just want to clarify that the case that will be argued in February, and which for some reason people are saying won't be decided till June, although of course, in fact, they can decide it at exactly. any time exactly. after the arguments. I don't know why somebody has started saying they'll decide I, you're it exactly june. right it's, it's yeah. wrong to presume how long it'll take yeah i mean i i don't know how long it'll take it could take till june it could take longer but in any event that case will only decide the right to intervene it won't decide whether title 42 should stay in place for any reason um whether you are right in having brought the case to begin with as the aclu is that's the exactly right Okay, so that's, I think that's important for people to understand. Yeah, and I, and I just want to just, you know, I, if I could just take one moment to yeah, say please. the ACLU and our partners have brought the case. 
So there's the Texas Civil Rights Project, there's Oxfam, there's an organization called RightEasis, and there's the Center for Gender and, and Refugee Studies. And so I just wanted to make sure that people understood that. Um, you're, you're exactly right. So this case in the Supreme Court will delay Title 42 from ending only to consider this sort of procedural issue of whether the states can enter. Um, and that that's unfortunate, but we will, you know, we'll continue fighting. We've been fighting for three years now and we'll obviously continue. Um, and I, and there is this other sort of Louisiana case, but I don't know whether that's something you want to get into now. Sure. And, and there's a, um, a Texas case too, isn't there another immigration case, Texas? On but, Title 42, the one that on Title 42 has sort of gone away. It was about unaccompanied minors and for now oh, okay. it's gone away. And, and so before we get to Louisiana, what you've said that the White House is defending a future potential right when it would be appropriate to use Title 42 for the purposes that it's being used, was being used for, uh, while admitting that it should not be used right now, that that should be off the table and that immigrants presenting themselves should have a right to an asylum hearing. Um, and But they also asked, and I think I'd like to talk about this, they asked for some time because there is a flood of asylum seekers at the border. And we don't have enough immigration judges or resources to grant hearings. Um, so what is, what's being done to get ready for whenever this is decided, whether it was to be five weeks after or whether it was to be in June. Um, what is yeah, that's the, that's the right question to ask. And I just want to um, make a couple of quick points and get to that. The, the first is that I just, and I think this has been clear, but we don't believe Title 42 is lawful even right. when there's a public health emergency because right. you can't override asylum. And the United Nations came in with their own brief, UNHCR or the High Court of Refugees, and, and said, look, when we when the refugee conventions were enacted, which the U.S. is following, it was very clear that no medical emergency can override the right to asylum because we knew that countries would always say, well, there's a public health crisis. And so it was not allowed to, in their view and in our view, override asylum, that other steps have to be taken, like quarantines, and those types of things. But if people are genuinely in danger, you can't send them back into danger. You need to take less restrictive steps. So that's one point I just wanted to quickly get out of the way. The other, and maybe we can come back to this, is the unfortunate thing is what we're hearing out of the White House is if Title 42 goes away, if they're for, they're thinking about bringing other anti-asylum Trump administration policies. Mm -hmm. And so that would be, in our view, really shameful. But we are hearing very seriously that that's what they're thinking of doing. What policies? Well, so one of them they're thinking about is what's called the transit ban, which says if you go through a third country, you have to apply for asylum there. And only if you're denied asylum in that third country can you come and seek asylum in the US. Now, on its face, everyone says, oh, that seems reasonable. You're walking through that country, apply for asylum, which would basically be Mexico or Guatemala for, for on the way to the US. That seems reasonable. But the truth is, what the reason it's not reasonable and it's basically illusory is because those countries don't have functioning asylum systems. So there's only a handful, for example, of asylum officers in Guatemala. You would wait years and then you'd routinely be denied. But in the meantime, 
you're in the same danger. And the same for Mexico's asylum system. So essentially, no one would get asylum in those countries, but you'd be in the same danger for, for potentially a year or longer while you waited. So it, it sounds like, oh, that seems fine. You know, we have an agreement with Canada where you actually can get a meaningful asylum hearing and do it so quickly, but the, the southern border would, would be illusory. And so that is highly unfortunate if the Biden administration is seriously doing that. But on your point about what is the federal government doing, I think there we're really not entirely sure, but we hope they're doing what they said they'll do. And the court staying this rule, staying the judge's ruling and allowing Title 42 to remain in place is unfortunate, but it should be giving the Biden administration time to surge resources as what as just as you said, you know, to get asylum officers, immigration judges in place to make sure there's housing, the logistics. They have plenty of time. And the truth is they have plenty of resources. I mean, everyone thinks, yes, there's a lot of migrants. But I think no one's really taking into account just how much resources the U.S. has. I mean, for example, when the Ukrainians came, we were thrilled that we were going to help the Ukrainians. What I think it also showed is we surged resources there so quickly and just smoothly and efficiently processed 100,000 Ukrainians. When we want to deport people, the resources go like that. When the Haitians were under the Del Rio Bridge in Texas, there were planes of federal officers going down there to deport them. So I really do think we have the resources. Are there going to be are there going to be short-term disruptions as the federal government said? Perhaps. But I don't think it's something we can't handle on long term. But it's exactly what you said where there's a will, there's a way. Are we going to now actually surge these resources or are we going to continue to rely on things like Title 42? Hopefully the Biden administration is not thinking Let's just keep relying on these Trump anti-Assam policies like Title 42 or the transit ban. Let's actually put in place a plan. And the interesting thing is that the Biden administration has put out regulations which have gotten very little attention. We're sort of on the pilot project stage that try to quicken the pace of asylum hearings at the border. I think a lot of advocacy groups feel like it's too quick, but it's a start for the discussion. And even without those new regulations, there are things called expedited removal. And as you pointed out, Joe, if you say you're just an economic migrant, you can be removed in a matter of hours. So that's not that different. The difference is if you say I'm in danger, you will at least get a screening. That can take only a couple of weeks, not the years just to weed out people who don't even have a credible asylum claim. And they can be removed in a week or so. It's at least screens out the people of credible asylum claims and then they go into a regular system can we make that regular system more efficient yes but i think we don't work on that because we're just relying on these crutches like title 42 and other measures but i think the biden administration needs to also work with the ngos the ngos are waiting to help to find housing for migrants to bust them places but the longer the administration continues to hold on to title 42 the less they engage in that kind of, you know, surging of resources. And we'll, we'll get to more talking about the NGO role in, for example, helping migrants who are bused to the vice president's right. Yeah. Right. residence. But Victor, do you want to maybe read some of what DHS and the White House uh, press office yeah. is saying about what they're, they well, have in mind? It seems like the Department of Homeland Security and also the White House is kind of punting the, the ball to Congress. I mean, um, the Department of Homeland Security released a statement 
um, and, and said, quote, we will continue to manage the border, but we do so within the constraints of a decades old immigration system that everyone agrees is broken. And then they continue to say that we need Congress to pass the comprehensive immigration reform legislation. President Biden proposing to office, Corinne Jean-Pierre, um, the press secretary said that today's order gives Republicans in Congress plenty of time to move past political finger pointing and join their uh, Democratic colleagues in solving the challenge at our border by passing um, the compre comprehensive reform measures and delivering the additional funds for border security that President Biden has requested. And so it seems like Congress has a responsibility here. We're not sure what will happen in this Congress quite um, yet, but I'm wondering what you think Congress can, should, and maybe will do for um, comprehensive immigration reform. Yeah, and that's a good question. I mean, I think to start with, I think the statement you read points out that there's a lot of finger pointing even between the White House and Congress. Mm -hmm. The White House needs to be ready, and DHS needs to be ready to surge resources regardless, because Congress may or may not act, as everyone knows, and they can't sit by and then say, we don't have enough resources there because we were waiting for Congress. So they need to do it. They have enough resources now to do it. Should Congress take up immigration? I, I think so. I, you know, there are certain things that we don't think need to be trade-offs. I think DACA does not need to be a trade-off. We just need to help the dreamers. But if Congress wants to look at the asylum system, it can look at it. But what we really hope is that Congress doesn't need, have a knee-jerk reaction and say, we're going to really basically throw away asylum out the window. As, as Joe said, we said after World War II, we would never again send people back to danger without a proper asylum hearing. And, you know, I would just as an aside would ask people to think about why all of a sudden is it OK to do it? Is it the demographics of who's coming? You know, just to really think deeply in their own in their own mind about why they're OK with it. Um, I think that the laws now allow the administration to put into place an efficient asylum system. And in, in fact, that's why, as I mentioned, the Biden administration has put out these test regulations. So I think that we actually can do it under the laws that are there. I think there needs to be more funding so that there can be more asylum officers, because that's really it. If you have more judges and you set up an efficient system, you can do it. I, I'm worried that what Congress is going to do is overreact and basically undermine asylum completely. And so that's a danger of Congress getting so involved now in a, in a knee-jerk way. But I think thoughtful legislation that helps a lot of people who have been stranded here, like the Dreamers, and puts in place a thoughtful asylum system that's both efficient and fair, you, you know, is fine. I just don't want to see the administration not do what they can do constantly waiting for Congress and then each time going back to court and saying, well, Congress didn't act, so now we're going to do this and this. Right. Well, and that goes back to Gorsuch's opinion that says this is not a COVID problem. This right. is an immigration problem that needs Congress to solve it. And um, But there is a question. It seems like Trump was able to use Title 42 through just doing it, uh, but President Biden can't stop using it by executive action is what am I missing? Why is no, that? you're not missing anything. And that is, that's what I was alluding to, unfortunately, too cryptically with the Louisiana case. Okay. So, so talk about that. Yeah. So what happened was that in the middle of our litigation in DC, I think in response to the first wave of our litigation, CDC then just said, look, enough's enough. We're not carrying 
political water anymore on this because they, I think, fairly clearly recognized that they were being asked to carry the political weight of border management by misuse of the public health laws. And so what they did this past April, April 20, uh, 2022, is say, look, we no longer have a public health justification to do this. Our authority, to the extent we had it, was based on public health. We no longer can do it. So we're going to get rid of it in five, six weeks, whatever it was, five, six, seven weeks, based on transitioning to that new system. We're going to search the resources and all that. The states then came in, These basically these same states that have eventually tried to come in, in our case in D.C., went to court in Louisiana, federal court, and said, the Biden administration can't voluntarily get rid of Title 42 because they didn't do what was called notice and comment under the Administrative Procedure Act, which means you basically have to publish the termination of the Title 42 order, let people comment on it, and then decide whether you still want to go through with it. And the federal government opposed that, rightly said, the Title 42 orders have always been sort of extraordinary, quick measures. They weren't published with notice and comment, so they don't need to be removed with notice and comment. The Louisiana federal judge unfortunately agreed with the states and said, I am not going to let the Biden administration voluntarily get rid of Title 42. So the judge kept Title 42 in place, would not let the Biden administration voluntarily get rid of it. We then had to go back to our court in D.C. and say, well, if they can't voluntarily get rid of it, you need to order that it be ended because it's illegal. And that judge agreed with us and said, and so that's this very complicated back and forth between the two courts where we were happy for the Biden administration to get rid of it voluntarily. The Louisiana court wouldn't let them get it rid of it voluntarily. So we said, okay, to the D.C. court, if they can't get rid of it voluntarily, you're going to need to get rid of it because it's illegal. And the judge agreed it was illegal. So we have this sort of push-pull between the two cases that's very complicated. Now, the Biden administration is appealing that Louisiana case. We're going forward in D.C. And so either way, the, we could get rid of Title 42, but it's going to take a while. The other thing the Biden administration could do is they didn't feel like they needed to do this notice and comment to the public to get rid of Title but they could have done it. They could have just said, we're doing it over objection. We're going to appeal the ruling anyway, but we could have just done notice and comment. And we had hoped that they would, because that was all the way back in May when that Louisiana court said, do notice and comment. Now, truthfully, they might have done notice and comment and the states might have come up with another theory of why they couldn't get rid of it. And so you never really know, but we would have preferred the Biden administration take every step to get rid of it. They didn't, and so now we're in this place where we got a ruling from D.C. saying, okay, you can't get rid of it voluntarily right now, but I think it's illegal. It would have ended. That would have been enough, but for the 19 states coming in and saying, wait, wait, we want to be involved in this case to argue it's not illegal. And truthfully, I don't really know at the end of the day what the states will say when it comes down to the merits of all this, because they have opposed COVID restrictions across the board yes. in their states. And now all of a sudden, if they're allowed in the case, they're going to say, we needed this COVID restriction. It was critical. There was a COVID crisis when in most of these states, there is not even a willingness to, you know, to push vaccines or testing. And so I think we're in a sort of odd world now where everyone knows what's happening, that this is 
as Justice Gorsuch said, being misused to deal with the border, but it's still going on. And, and if it does ultimately go as it should your way, you feel sure that there's enough resources to get it done in a, a good way. I, I do. Uh, you know, I don't, I, I know that people, I think the images distort things a little bit because they're always just show mass of people coming over. But I think a lot of that is that we've backed up people for so many months waiting to come that in the short term, there are going to be a lot of people. But ultimately, I think there's always, uh, you know, a cyclical um, move of migration. But we do we do need to have a lot of resources. I don't I'm not suggesting it's easy and the federal government will have a challenge, but I think we can do it. Um, it's just the reality of that we're going to have to have an efficient system. I, I think my basic feeling is we need to grapple with that issue in exactly the kind of ways you're suggesting. And we need to get move on from Title 42. Let's call Title 42 for what it is. It's a relic, public health, move on. And then let's grapple with how much resources do we need? What kind of efficient system? And start from the premise that we need some asylum screening what's that asylum screening going to look like? But right now we're having a debate that completely, I think, distorts our right. values and our laws of let's have no asylum process whatsoever. And that I feel like is not a proper starting point for us. So before we run out of time, I want to get to two other questions. One would be if you could briefly summarize what you think would be good asylum policy. You are someone who is, you know, really knowledgeable, you've seen it firsthand, you meet with people who are in desperate straits. Um, and so I would really value your input on what you think is, and, and if you could maybe limit it to what is possible given, I mean, as we're having this conversation, um, I haven't checked my phone, I've been very good, but uh, McCarthy has lost at least three rounds uh, as speaker. And um, I don't know what the outcome is going to be. We could be without a con without a house for weeks as this goes forward if nobody blinks. So uh, when I say what's possible, um, it's I mean right now Hakeem Jeffries has more votes to be Speaker of the House than Kevin McCarthy. So we're in a really bad place. But what would maybe what would ideal be and is there anything that's possible? Yeah. Well, so, you know, I think, and, and this is, you know, sort of part of like a larger conversation with the groups that just do asylum work and the United Nations, which sees, but I think one thing to, to keep in mind is that a, a lot of people think, well, how can we spend money giving people lawyers? But what I think a lot of people don't realize, and, you know, Joe, as a lawyer, you, you know, this is, Sometimes having the lawyers, it may cost a little more upfront, but it makes the system much more efficient and in the long run will save time. Because what happens is you have a lawyer and they say, look, you can't get asylum just because you'd rather live in the US or you'd rather have a job here. Or, And so that case is gonna go away. No lawyer is gonna push it. And then if there is a lawyer, they're not gonna have continuance after continuance where the judge says, you can go out and try and find a lawyer, try and convince an NGO. So I think that's one thing. The other thing is keeping people in detention costs an enormous amount of money. 
the psalm seekers are not a danger notwithstanding this narrative out there these families with little children are not a danger there are ways to make sure they come to their asylum hearings the obama administration put in a case management system that was enormously effective in making sure asylum seekers showed up and then i do think we need to make sure we have enough judges and enough resources but ultimately i think it's going to be money wisely spent because we are going to be moving through the cases much more quickly lawyers and judges are going to say no you don't have an asylum claim or you do have an asylum claim but i need to see more facts and so the lawyer is going to be able to quickly gather those facts where if you tell a lay person this is the technical stuff i need in court the case just goes on and on and on where the law the person just says i need a continuance i don't understand i don't understand so I think there are ways to do this. I'm also not sure that we're always going to have this level of migration flow. It's really cyclical. And hopefully, I mean, I do think we do need to look at root causes. The problem with looking at root causes as the only solution is it doesn't do anything right now for people are in danger. But I do think there are steps and people have, you know, made thoughtful contributions to how the system would work. If you're not detaining people and therefore lawyers can't visit them because a lot of asylum seekers are put in remote places in the deep south where lawyers can't get to them if you have a lawyer they're not detained they can talk quickly you have more judges to process the cases i i do think it can work and i you know i don't no one should su suggest that it's so easy boom it's going to be done like that but on the other hand what's the solution the united states alone among Western countries and moan maybe in the whole world except for five or six countries doesn't have an asylum system. That can't be the solution. Well, we are grateful that you are fighting for a better system and that you're um, taking the case uh, with for ACLU on Title 42. Um, and I know that we'll be hearing a lot more on that in the coming weeks. But before we end, I, I just want to ask you, what are some other uh, Supreme Court cases that ACLU um, and your and your colleagues are working on and paying attention to uh, this term? Um, you know, it's across the board. Obviously, we are concerned about reproductive rights cases throughout the country and which ones potentially go to the Supreme Court. Um, the affirmative action case that was argued in the Supreme Court. There's a bunch of cases and there is obviously, I don't know whether you meant just immigration cases, but no, no, we were talking about LGBTQ and yeah, there, other think, issues that are before the court. This I think time. truthfully, we're concerned about a lot of areas and there's a lot of cases percolating through the lower federal courts and which ones will ultimately end up in the court. I don't know, but I think some of the big ones are the voting rights cases, yeah. um, the affirmative action. Freedom. Yeah, I think all those issues are sort of right there on the on the edge um so we'll just uh well as a longtime aclu member and a former board member in chicago uh i am grateful for all the work that the aclu does and the the documentary that you have a prominent role in about immigration also features other areas exactly. that the aclu is involved in and i really think people should get to see all the work the ACLU does to protect our rights yeah. and um, make sure that we stay the democracy that we founded uh, that seems to be maybe slipping away right now. So thank you for all the work you do and all the work that the ACLU does. We're very grateful. Thank you both for having me and for shining a light on, on this issue. We really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much, Lily.
Yeah, so that was a fascinating discussion. Um, Jill and I, we are both checking our phones to see if anything- um, Who gets theirs on first yes, um, to see? To see if anything new has happened. Um, the last that we knew, um, oh, so the house has adjourned. Um, oh, for, the, for the night? For the, for the night, yeah. So it seems like they have no leader. Uh, they mean the Republican Party, so has no leader uh, of the party as of um, you know today. So um, it'll go into the next few rounds. And it's we'll not see. really the leader of the party. It is the leader of the house. Of the house, Whether yes. Whether we yes. like it or not. There's no leader, and there is therefore no legislation that can be proposed. Yeah, no committees can begin work. No, and I mean, and some of that may be good yeah. given what they want to do. As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> yeah. the investigations they're planning on having, um, but maybe I mean, it's not so bad. What, what a difference there is between the Democrats and Republicans. I mean, Jill mentioned this during the episode, but Hakeem Jeffries has more votes to be speaker than Kevin McCarthy, and and every single Democrat voted to back. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries. Um, Democrats have also nominated a great slate of people to be ranking members on different committees, Jamie Raskin being um, the ranking member of the House Oversight Committee. So they are really lining their ducks in yeah. a row. Um, you know, the saying is Democrats in array now and Republicans in disarray. And the contrast couldn't be starker, I think. I mean, you saw someone like Nancy Pelosi be such an effective leader. And then now yeah. you have Kevin McCarthy struggling to even whip his caucus. It's yeah. kind of sad. Although, actually, of course, the Republicans in the Senate are not in disarray. You have yeah. McConnell still being, uh, he's now the longest serving leader, yeah. um, I think, in history. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they aren't in disarray there. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be helping at the House where oh. it, it's a total mess and where nothing can be done. You can't have any legislation. That means you can't fund the government. Yeah. That means you can't take on comprehensive immigration reform. You can't do anything if we don't have someone elected. And someone's going to have to blink. I don't know who it's going to be. Um, obviously, it doesn't seem likely that it's going to be... Uh, actually, McCarthy lost in yeah. the third round, seems to have lost... At least one. At least one, and maybe more, uh, although I, that wasn't gaveled, so people can still change right, their vote. Right, right. Um, but until we, you know, I, I, I'm not good enough of doing two things at once to see. Oh, wow. So it seems like the third round, um, Jim, so it was just one. So Jim Jordan got okay. 20 votes, Hakeem Jeffries 212, and then um, mm -hmm. McCarthy 202. So it's, uh, he's Well, he's wouldn't that be interesting if Hakeem Jeffries became the Speaker of the House? Yeah. Be wonderful. Um, but it's, that's not going to happen, folks. I, you, you heard it here first. It will not happen. Um, but who it will be, no. that remains. And I want to point out that McCarthy has moved into the Speaker's office. <laughs> He's already there. He's occupying the office. And that's because he did win the majority in the Republican caucus. Yeah. And so he, that's, I, I guess, the assumption mm -hmm. is that he would then be confirmed by the whole House. And But that didn't happen. We will definitely be watching this. Who knows how long it'll take, but we will continue to shine a light on this. Um, not sure who's going to be the next Speaker of the House, but like Joel said, I mean, the, the consequences of the, the failure from the Republican Party to confirm someone yeah. is, is going to be um, pretty great because that means that there are no um, bills that can be introduced, nothing that can be passed in the House. So um, hopefully they can get this solved. Uh, and all very funding quickly. bills start at the House. Yes, exactly. In case you don't remember your high school civics lessons. <laughs> In case you aren't even getting high school civics <laughs> lessons anymore, yeah, yeah. Uh, all all funding bills 
start at the house. Yes. There won't be any if we don't get this done. And this hasn't happened in over 100 years. Yeah. Uh, and, and the one that was 100 years ago was the first time since the Civil War. Um, and yeah. there was one example where it went on for several weeks. Yeah. That would be very dangerous. And it means that he will be crippled. He McCarthy, if he is elected, yes. he's he's not going to be a strong leader. No. So I think that's something we have to keep in mind. And anyway, we hope you'll be with us again next week. Yes, we'll have on Carol Lenig from the Washington Post to talk about her really good book on the CIA. You don't want to miss that. Um, we we will be sure to post the links. Uh, for next Tuesday. In the meantime, you can find us wherever you follow your podcasts and also find us here right here on YouTube at youtube.com slash Politicon. Um, you don't want to miss next week uh, next week's episode. Be sure to tune in. In the meantime, hope you have a great start to your new year and be safe and healthy. Happy New Year. And I just want to say that I, I cried at parts of Carol's book. It's amazing to think of that. But when I was reading about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, uh, which is a very early political memory for me. I was in college at the time. It really brought back memories. Yeah. Um, it's it's a wonderful book, and you will enjoy the conversation. She's a great person to talk to. So see you next week. Happy Bye, New everyone. Year.